electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Hi, everybody. I'm Kelly Evans. Here's what's coming up this hour. Return or resign? Resign, I should say. We're not signing. We're resigning. Ahead of tomorrow's closely watched jobs report, new data shows job candidates either getting more interested in returning to work or in never coming back to their old jobs at all. We'll explore what it means for the big jobs report in the morning. Plus, ChargePoint shares are charging ahead today on a strong quarter, but still down more than 50% from their 52-week high. We'll speak to the CEO to discuss these numbers and what's next for EVs. And cars, cost concerns, and canned goods. Inflation and supply chain issues are weighing on earnings across nearly every sector today. We have some names to snap up despite these headwinds coming up in rapid fire. But with the S&P, the NASDAQ... How many stars do we get to see today? Dom Chu is here with the market action. Two gold ones. You get them both for those indices. And it's amazing, Kelly, by the way, how much you can change the meaning of a word just with the emphasis. Resign versus resign. Almost like the exact opposites, right? So anyway, as Kelly pointed out, we do have the gold stars out for the S&P 500. It hit a record high today shortly after the opening bell. And it's been kind of cruising to the higher side since. The Nasdaq Composite, same thing as well. It's actually a fairly even day across the board, about one quarter to one half percent gains for the major indices here. But the S&P 500 still above that 4,500 level and the Nasdaq still above 15,000. A lot of traders are saying maybe this has some legs. It could be a breakout in the making right now. So we'll continue to watch those indices. Also on the cryptocurrency side of things, talking about breakouts here, we did see Bitcoin earlier today show a little bit of a little bit of life there, cracking it back above that 50,000 mark. It's been trying to kind of do that ever since. Ethereum prices also have been on an absolute tear. That orange line over the last few months here has actually more than doubled in value. So Ethereum far outpacing Bitcoin in terms of gains. You can see their massive moves higher in cryptocurrency. And then our stock of the day. It's a stock we don't often talk about, but it is the best performer in the S&P 500 so far today by a pretty wide margin, a 10% gain for Quanta services. What is Quanta? It's one of the biggest makers of electrical power grids for utility companies. So not a utility necessarily itself, but it makes all the stuff that utilities use. They're going to buy Blattner Group, which is a privately held maker of renewable energy projects and grids. That company is getting a bid because everyone thinks that it could be a great deal down the line if there's a continued push for that green investing, green energy, ESG type investing. So watch Qantas Services, Kelly, a big move higher. And by the way, it gets a yellow star because it hit a record high today. Back over to you. Wow, that's a great story, Dom. Thank you very much. Dom Chu. Stocks are climbing again today, this, this time, despite Morgan Stanley cutting its third quarter GDP forecast by more than half. It's down to less than 3% growth from its original 6.5% estimate. Why do investors keep shrugging off a slowing recovery? Let's ask my next guests. Mark Smith is the Senior Vice President for Investments at Wells Fargo Advisors. And Brian McCauley is Co-Portfolio Manager at the Hennessy Funds. Welcome to both of you. Mark, I'll start with you. Why, why no greater concern for, the, for all the slowing growth that we're now starting to see? Hey, thanks for having me back on, Kelly. Um, the economy and the market kind of remind me of this book I read in high school, The Tale of Two Cities. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. And you've seen the best of times. The stock market is at all-time highs. 
the real estate prices around the country at all-time highs, cash on hands in Americans' pocket at all-time highs. And you've got, you know, my clients who are small and mid-sized business owners, they, they just got out of a pandemic and were coming, coming on the way out. They're leaner and meaner than ever. And so all good things on that end. But we're seeing reopening. Some of my clients who are in corporate America are saying they don't have to be back to work till 2022, 2023. Um, the Fed is really dovish. They're not talking anything about raising rates anytime soon. Right. And then you just saw this week that the U.S. is on a list of countries that uh, Europeans shouldn't travel to. So lots of different things that we're looking at right now. But value is where I'm seeing opportunities, specifically in the financial sector. You're seeing that um, from 08, 09, they really haven't come back like a lot of other sectors have. And their diversified revenue streams is, is phenomenal. They got credit cards, mortgages, wealth management, asset management, investment banking. Right. So if you, if you were talking about this like a tech company, you know, um, it's so funny that the financials are competing against a tech company, which I think is going to they're in a competition for their life. And all these companies are doing really well on the financial side. So financials for sure. And then materials is another sector to look at. Every single one of my clients who's buying a home or renovating a home. All their materials are up 20, 30, sometimes 40 percent. And the weights are nine to 12 months to get things. So I think the material sector uh, really has a good story as well to continue the uh, performance. They're up 17 percent year yeah. to date. Brian, let me turn to you. You like CarMax, RH, Allegiant Travel. So a couple of themes there that kind of fit into the world that Mark was describing. But what would you say to those? Uh, I'll sort of repeat the opening question. You know, why do markets keep doing well, even as the data point towards a loss of momentum? Well, we still have a very um, accommodative Fed. Uh, you know, stimulus programs are, are robust and still uh, consumers have a lot of money in their pockets to spend. Uh, you know, there are um, difficulties hiring employees. Uh, so employees are getting raises. And I, I think there's a, a general ebullience about this reopening experience that we're having. And so when we look back and take stock of where we're at, you know, we're up fivefold with dividends reinvested in the S&P 500 over the last 12 years since the bottom of 09. And, you know, we're seeing a lot of relatively speculative activity in the market with meme stocks back approaching their highs, with uh, with SPACs, um, you know, being so popular, with aggressive growth companies, uh, 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 you know, being uh, very richly valued. And so our approach in this market is really to look for areas that are not so hot, but still have a lot of value to them. And we're finding that in, in uh, some reopening plays and transportation um, CarMax, uh, Allegiant Travel, RH are good examples of that. Yeah. Do you think that the market overall, Brian, is going to underperform in the years ahead? I think we're looking at a mid to high single digit total return in equities over the next decade. And so it's, uh, uh, you know, probably below historical averages, but relative to fixed income, uh, you know, I think it's a pretty good place to be still, especially with interest rates as low as they are. Yeah, and let's pick up on those low interest rates. Mark, circle back to you and talk about the financials for a moment. You know, rightly or wrongly, they do trade together. So, you know, if you think interest rates are going up, financials are an obvious play. But what if they don't? You know, tell me how you think or what you would do with that trade if I told you the 10-year was still going to be below 1.5% uh, next spring. That's a great question. And there's a good indication that it could be um, based on how dovish the Fed is. But I do think that these financial firms have found a way to make money when all the winds are, are, are blowing against them. And so the fact that they've really diversified the ways they make money and they're really competing well against a tech industry that is coming for their neck, 
I'd still stay long the financials no matter where interest rates are for the sh- for the short term because if you're a long term investor, you're seeing all you're seeing is value there, uh, and so I would continue to you know have that no matter where uh, rates are in the next twelve months. All right, Mark Smith and Brian McCauley, thank you guys both of talking through these markets on some record highs today. Let's turn our attention now to China, with authorities now summoning and interviewing 11 ride-hailing firms over illegal behavior as the crackdown on companies continues. Shares of Didi, which has about 90% of the ride-hailing market in China, they're lower another 3% today and down 50% from their all-time high in July. Eunice Yoon is live in Beijing with the very latest for us today. Eunice? Thanks, Kelly. Well, that illegal behavior is unhealthy competition, disturbing market order, or recruiting drivers who don't have the right permits. So the transport ministry, along with other regulators, ordered that companies need to improve their workers' conditions and sort out pricing for drivers and rectify, they said, all of these unfair tactics by the end of the year. Now, separately, China tightened its controls on show business, uh, promising that they would rein in salaries for celebrities, harsher punishments for uh, impose harsher punishments for tax evaders and mandated broadcasters ban artists who have incorrect political views or effeminate styles. Companies, as you could imagine, are scrambling to try to fall in line with all of these Beijing initiatives. Alibaba, for one, confirmed to us that it is investing more than $15 billion to support President Xi's common prosperity goal, funding small and medium-sized companies, as well as farmers. And then Weibo, the social media platform, shut stuff tips accounts that have millions of followers, but that have been deemed by Beijing to be bad-mouthing China's financial markets as well as its economic policies. Kelly? Well, so let's pick up on this, Eunice, because we're also hearing out of China um, this move to create a Beijing stock index, crack down on some of the more speculative, uh, what they would deem speculative areas of stock trading. What do we know and how does that fit into this move against ride-hailing firms? Um, well, we don't know a whole lot of detail at this point um, in terms of the way that it might relate to ride-hailing firms, not so much, except that uh, there's been some speculation that this is one way that President Xi uh, could try to attract other companies that list overseas to China because uh, the, the government here is trying to support the and promote a lot of the financial markets um, here in China vis-a-vis uh, compared to other parts of the world. So this new market in Beijing is going to be focused very much on small and medium-sized companies. Uh, President Xi said that uh, the government here is also going to deepen the reforms for the new third board, which also specializes in some small and medium-sized companies. But he wants to make Beijing um, what he described as a center for innovation-oriented small and medium-sized companies. Again, not a whole lot of detail on what that exactly means, except that the stock market regulator very quickly, I might add, um, put out a statement saying that they're very excited about uh, resolutely implementing uh, President Xi's order. And we are very excited to uh, see how that all goes. <laughs> Eunice, thanks. Uh, we appreciate your reporting tonight. Eunice Yoon in Beijing for us. Coming up, boosted jobless benefits for millions of Americans are set to expire this weekend. But new data suggests more people may already be interested in returning to work. The latest sentiment read from both recruiters and candidates. Plus, catastrophic wildfires in the West are putting America's water supply at risk. Posing a threat not only to Wall Street, but to businesses in every industry will tell you how it affects water stocks next. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older 
like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration. Our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back to The Exchange. With federal enhanced unemployment benefits set to expire on Monday, the job market is still tilted in workers' favor. Here with the latest from Recruiter.com's Sentiment Index, which can often give us a glimpse of what the official jobs data tomorrow will tell us, I'm joined by Evan Sohn. He's chairman and CEO of Recruiter.com. Evan, it's great to have you. And overall, it seems like sentiment is pretty good. Yeah, the recruiter sentiment is the same as it was last month, which was at our high since the uh, pandemic, at a 3.9 out of 5. Uh, the interesting thing is that, remember, August is typically not a great month for recruiting, neither is uh, December. Uh, and yet, even uh, in our own business, we're seeing really record numbers across the board, uh, really for August itself. So the sentiment is certainly high. So to you, that would point to a strong overall jobs report tomorrow. Yeah, yeah, I would say that we're we're certainly seeing uh, more backfills starting to happen now. Uh, candidate sentiment uh, was the same 3.1 out of 5 that it was last month, but that meant it didn't decline. For the first time since April, it didn't decline. And we're hoping that it's really gearing up for candidates getting ready to go back to work and either to go back to a job since they've been unemployed or to actually start that great resignation or the great reshuffle as we're talking about now. Tell me why you think we're at this kind of catalyst point for a trend that's been firmly underway, which is that people are either finally looking to get back to work or maybe looking to kind of change what they're doing altogether. Why now are you all of a sudden seeing more and more about this change being picked up in your data? Uh, thank you so much, Kelly. You know, what we saw this past month was that in the prioritization of candidates, we've always been neck and neck with compensation and remote work. We actually saw work-life balance go from 15 percent which it was in July to 20% in August. So that's really interesting because that's what's telling me is that as a candidate, I'm more qualified than I was ever before, whether that's the Java programmer or the person willing to walk into a factory live, they're more qualified, but I want that work-life balance. Don't tell me it's only remote or only hybrid or only in-person. I want to understand what the balance is. And we're seeing in our own AI sourcing tools that we have today the need to be more creative in attracting those candidates. And we're seeing that across the board there. And I think that's a great opportunity for employers to attract uh, candidates and for candidates to get attracted to companies. They're going to be more creative in how they try to hire them. And I see salaries, uh, as you report, still inching higher. More uh, recruiters seeing salaries increase last month. So let's posit that tomorrow morning the numbers, I mean, I listen to you and I go, maybe this is going to be a blowout and no one's expecting it. But but let's posit that it's a miss. ADP was a miss. All, you know, a lot of yeah. Wall Street's been taking down their expectations for, for it. Would you say you think that's because the demand side of the economy is slowing and because of Delta? Or would you say you think that's because there's a constraint that, that companies literally can't 
fill their roles. So they'd like to hire, you know, the equivalent of a million roles, but they can only hire 600,000. Yeah, I would say the the in the equation of, of hiring, the top of the equation has to change. Uh, there are fewer candidates applying to jobs. We're seeing fewer people raise their hand and saying, I'm more interested. In fact, we saw that even in the index. There are fewer applicants per job than there were even a month ago. That number has to change because there's only a certain number of placements, your typical talent acquisition professional or recruiter, be it outsourced or insourced, can actually do on a monthly basis. And so if you're trying to attract more people, something has to change. Either I need more people looking for those jobs, or I need more recruiters or more talent acquisition professionals to help move people through the funnel. And again, let's add that creativity. So you have all these forces acting together. I wanna go back to work, but I only wanna go where I'm gonna have that work-life balance. I want a better salary. I don't have a college degree. I don't always wanna go back to the work, uh, go back into my office full-time. I don't only wanna be remote, but I want that balance. And I think as companies start to align their expectations of the employees, we'll start having a faster a faster match between yeah. what the employers are looking for and the candidates. And maybe Wall Street itself giving us a glimpse of that raising sal base salaries for some of the younger employees and, and things like that. It's very interesting, Evan, a lot to think about. We really appreciate it. It's always great to check in with you. Thanks so much, Kelly. Evan Stone is Recruiter.com's chairman and CEO. And if you want a clear read on what investors think about the labor market, take a look at the performance of a bunch of names that specialize in recruiting. Corn Ferry, ticker KFY, seeing a pretty massive 64% gain this year. It's just a few percent off its all-time high. Manpower also having a great 2021, jumping 35%, and it has a lot of global exposure as well. And finally, ZipRecruiter, which just went public in May. It's up 24% since then, and average analyst ratings have the stock headed to 35 and above. It's at 26 today. Coming up, Ford auto sales were taken to the woodshed in August, plunging by a third from a year ago. We'll dig into the data and tell you what one big investor says is the reason to blame. And shares of spam maker Hormel are slumping to their lowest level, get this, since the pandemic low, since March of 2020, they're down 5% today. Even after beating estimates, its profit came in line with uh, expectations. But why is the stock sliding so much today? We'll tell you what management said on the call after this. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools. everybody. Welcome back to The Exchange. Let's get a quick check on markets as we head into half past the hour. Dow's up 127 points. It's the outperformer with a third of a percent gain today. S&P's up 11. Nasdaq up 31. The latter two hitting more record highs today. Here are some of the movers. We're watching American Eagle get its wings clipped a little bit today with its worst post earnings loss in two years after missing revenue estimates down about 9%. But the real story here, as our earnings editor Robert Hum points out, is that retail profit margins continue to show strength this earnings season. American Eagle's 14% profit margins, operating margin, highest since 2008. And just last week, Advanced Auto Parts and Best Buy handily beat estimates thanks to stronger-than-expected profit margins. So something to keep in mind as investors shrug off the stock today. Meantime, we have at least 75 new 52-week highs on the S&P 500 today, including Costco, Kroger, Pool Company, Albemarle, and Waste Management. Now to Rahel Solomon for our CNBC News Update. Rahel? 
Hi, Kelly. Hello, everyone. And here's what's happening at this hour. Across the Northeast, winds and flooding from what's left of Hurricane Ida have caused at least 25 deaths. Tornadoes were reported in New Jersey and New York, with some homes destroyed. President Biden telling the energy secretary to do everything she can to keep gas flowing. That includes releasing gasoline from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve. That's why we're not waiting to assess the full impact of the storm is going to have on oil production and refineries. We're moving already quickly to increase the availability of gas and easing the pressure on gas prices around the country. And on the news, live reports on the ground in the Northeast and Louisiana with the latest on search and rescue efforts that airs tonight at 7 p.m. Eastern. And federal highway officials estimate that more than 8,700 people died in car crashes in the first three months of the year. That is a 10% jump from last year, even though Americans actually drove 2% fewer miles. You're now up to date, Kelly. I'll send it back to you. Faster drivers, worse accidents. Yeah, we've heard about that, Rahel. Thank you. Meantime, sales slumps and delivery delays for the auto sector. Can Five Below stay true to its name? And are you still watching Netflix's stealth rally? All that and more is coming up in rapid fire in just a moment. Welcome back, everybody. Let's catch you up on a few stories that should be on your radar right now. It's time for Rapid Fire. And here today to break down the headlines with me, Michael Santoli is with us, Seema Modi as well, and Delano Sapporo, who is founder of New Street Advisors and a CNBC contributor. Delano, it's great to have you in the mix as well. Let's begin with supply chain and semiconductor issues that are continuing to crush the auto industry. You see the Ford numbers? They reported that sales dropped 33% in August from the previous year. They cut F-150 production. They've cut shifts of plants around the country again. And Elon Musk tweeted that the delivery of the Tesla Roadster is now delayed until 2023. He's calling it the year of the supply chain shortages. So can any automaker handle this problem? Delano, what do you think? Uh, thanks, Kelly. I, I definitely think there, there's going to be persistent problems for all automakers uh, for the foreseeable future, especially this year and going into next. But as you mentioned, I, I think I like what Tesla's doing in the sense of we have a stock that's a $740 billion market cap stock that has now seen some, some turnaround in the stock, stock trend. I added to some of my positions over the last month as we saw yields go down and recalibration of expectations for, for growth investors. So I think you want to look at the largest market share here. You want to look at the best in player when it comes to electric vehicles. So I'm kind of sticking with that Tesla trend. Delano, do you think that Kathy Wood is right? So she's obviously made her point uh, many times that she thinks EV sales are going from 2 to 40 million in this country by 2025. But she also tweeted last night that she thinks the slump in auto sales from the traditional OEMs is become is coming at the expense of growing uh, EV sales share. Do you I mean, it feels a little early for that. To, we know that Ford is dealing with so many other issues. This just maybe yeah. being another one at the margin. Yeah, I 100% agree. It can't just be um, just a shift from to from a traditional OEMs to electric vehicle. There is that supply shortage issue uh, that is happening to all manufacturers. But I do think she's right in the sense of you're going to see that shift. You're seeing the government um, back a shift to electric vehicles. But I think all the traditional automakers are saying that they're in line with trying to look at ways to, to increase their percentage of sales being EV. So it's definitely not a complete shift, but you're seeing some trends in that area. Seema, what would you add? I think referencing supply chain risks, it's becoming highly convenient for these executives. Supply chain means so much to me now, Kelly. It's containers, it's <laughs> raw materials, it's yes, the over-reliance on China and other Asian countries for their semiconductor chips. But if they don't unpack what that word, what that phrase means, then investors and Kathy Wood, that leaves the door open for someone like Kathy Wood to come in and say, yeah, it's, it's the adoption of electric cars by Tesla. Yeah, it's a great point. Michael, where do you come down on this? 
Well, we're down 5 million units annually in terms of sales from what was anticipated, from 18 to 13 million. Tesla's going to go from 500,000 sales last year to 800,000 this year. The used car prices have soared for gasoline-powered cars. The backlog in terms of orders for gasoline-powered cars and the prices are at record levels. So to me, two things can be true at once. EV share is going to be going up, no doubt about that. And this year's decline in in auto sales is almost entirely about about supply. So it really hitting the dealers, I think, in, in a way harder than anybody else. Look at CarMax and AutoNation shares. They are uh, they're getting hurt pretty hard. They yeah. have no, no cars to sell, no service plans to sell. And those are some of the strongest performers. It's a great point uh, earlier this year. All right, let's turn to more supply chain issues. This, one, this one's for SEMA. Uh, these have a little bit more hopeful tone. Five below beat on earnings, but did miss on revenue and did issue weak guidance. The shares down about 12% right now, but analysts at Jeffrey say this is a great time to buy the dip. They love Five Below's management team. They say they're well equipped, equipped to handle further disruptions. Seema, this one's interesting. So we know that people don't like the dollar stores in times like these, you know, especially Dollar Tree fixed costs, Five Below fixed costs, supply chain issues uh, stemming from China. Why do you, do you buy what Jeffries is selling here, saying that, that Five Below is actually well positioned for times like these? Yeah, there seems to be times in, in an economic cycle where that con the consumer becomes a bit more budget conscious and they're thinking about their wallet with every purchase they're making. And that seems to be the type of environment where a company like Five Below would outperform. Are we in that environment? Remains to be seen. I did read this earnings transcript, which I actually found pretty interesting. I don't say that often, but they talked about how they're seeing growth in the pets category, which I'm not a pet owner yet, but I assume that if I was, I wouldn't want to spend a lot on, on I don't know, all the stuff you buy for a pet. And I would perhaps go to a five below, but maybe there's Amazon for that. Uh, and they also said how they can participate in all the trends that are out there because they've got that manufacturing footprint uh, in China, which I thought was interesting, too. I, I, Seema's feisty today. I, I'm very much enjoying this. Uh, Delano, do you want to weigh in on, on whether your pets would buy at five below or why you just think in general you'd be a little bit more cautious on the stock in the near term? I do think, you know, in the near term, you're looking at caution just because of, you know, as mentioned in the transcript that, he, uh, that Seema mentioned, we're seeing management kind of guide and be cautious about going forward with, with their expectations on growth. So, but I definitely think there's obviously opportunities um, for investors to look at this as a buy opportunity in the long term, especially you saw they just dropped, you know, considerably and year to date, they're up 9%. So I think you have to look at it kind of both sides in that area. Okay. Okay. All right. Got you. All right. Next up uh, for Hormel, it's not really just supply chain headwinds. It's the way that inflation is also playing into that and weighing on results. So I mentioned a moment ago, Hormel, worst level for the stock since March 2020. Management warned of rising costs uh, in the quarter. CEO Jim Snee saying that, quote, we saw significant inflationary pressures in almost all areas of our business. We've implemented pricing actions across virtually every brand, which has been our main lever to offset these inflationary pressures. Now, this is as Procter & Gamble says it's ramping up production of toilet paper and paper towels again, as people anticipate maybe more COVID lockdown-related lockdowns or just more being at home. Mike, you know, spam, <laughs> spam might have some pricing power, but you know, analysts have long said that the rest of Hormel's offerings uh, don't have as much brand strength maybe as competitors. Right, exactly. Uh, and, you know, Campbell's yesterday had similar things to say about the cost pressures, about the attempt to pass them along, about, you know, uh, transport costs and everything else. And I, I do think there's a real separation that's gone on within the general consumer staples area uh, between the food companies, the packaged food companies, which if you remember last year, part of the narrative was, hey, everyone's kind of pantry loading. They're re kind of, uh, you know, learning to love our brands again and they're reestablishing their relationships with the traditional brands. Maybe that has legs. And now you're going up against very tough 
uh, comps, and you, you can't necessarily pass through all the costs. So the market is really depressing the valuations on the traditional packaged food companies compared to P&G and Kimberly Clark and Colgate Palmolive, where it just seems that they're more resilient in terms of their brand strength and ability to get price through. It's a great point, and they're more diversified. You know, they also, I'll ask uh, Delano about the dividend in a moment, Seema, but these are names that you might have thought, okay, that look at the trade that's been working over the past three months. You have tech is winning, you know, back to this pandemic feel. You've t- obviously covered well what's going on in the travel space, and yet, and yet, and yet, a stock like this cannot, you know, get a bid here. Yeah, and to your point, doesn't really tell you that a company like Hormel does not have pricing power. Um, interestingly enough, a couple of weeks ago, Chipotle talked about raising prices and the stock ripped higher. Whereas, uh, you know, a sharp contrast to that, what's happening in the hospitality sector, they're lowering prices because of the cancellations they're seeing and hoping consumers will come in the door. So uh, remains to be seen what happens with Hormel. No, but you're right. Usually if, if investors like pricing power, they like inflation, they like the stocks when they're raising prices. You see that with the strong brands, not the case here. So Delano, again, is this maybe a play where you can look to the dividend and say that, you know, this is an income play? Exactly right, Kelly. I'm not a holder. I'm not a buyer. Here is more of a of a growth investor. But if you're looking for a defensive dividend play, the five year chart's only up 13 percent. So it's really not an area for growth, and that's a something you know income play here for for Hormel. All right. Well, then let's stick with growth for a moment and talk about what's going on with Netflix. Again, this fits the idea that there are more of these trades, uh, growth related, pandemic related trades, that are starting to work again. Netflix is all of a sudden up nearly 20 percent in the last three months after underperforming for basically the 12 months prior to that, Bank of America saying that Netflix sees more downloads ahead of big content releases. Uh, Could their announcement of more than 40 movies this fall be partially behind the climb, Delano? 100%. 100%. I think, you know, Netflix was kind of trading sideways for a bit. And we, like you said, caught a bid here in the last few months, and I was adding to my position as well. And I think, as you mentioned, that, that backload of content, the big area in this kind of streaming battle and competition is that content. I think everyone is kind of going to shift towards there where they see the best content and stay with it. And so I think Netflix has an opportunity to continue to, to add subscribers, especially internationally. So I think there's opportunities for investors to continue to look at Netflix as a play for growth. Seema? Airbnb gained 10% in August. Uh, Netflix uh, gained a similar amount. So a lot of these companies do fit in that stay-at-home basket. There's more competition now. I will say my uh, favorite shows, they used to be all on Netflix, but now I'm waiting for Succession on HBO, uh, Marvelous Mrs. Maisel to come back on Amazon Prime. So uh, there's more out there uh, when it comes to content. Absolutely. Michael, I'll give you the final word. I think that is all true, but Netflix has gone from being the upstart challenger to the incumbent. Uh, They are the biggest one in what TV is right now. And we've had every other conceivable streaming service that could be a threat already launched. They're already out there. We know what their pacing of of sub ads are. And Netflix churn has not necessarily gotten much worse. And we've reset expectations on sub growth. To me, if I'm reading the market's mind, that's partially behind this move, along with the big content push they're getting later this year, which is, again, just an excuse uh, for maybe more signups. And, you know, they love these companies with big revenue, recurring revenue subscription bases, the market does, and some pricing power. Look at Charter and Comcast making new highs as well. It's not that dissimilar if you think of it as all part of the TV ecosystem. Very, very intriguing. And three cheers on the panel today for Netflix. Very surprising. Thank you all. We really appreciate it today. Michael Santoli, Seema Modi, and Delano Sapporo. Still ahead, wildfires are raging along the West Coast. We're going to take a look at how that's threatening the watershed and why big business is concerned about that next. 
And we'll talk to the CEO of Xylem, a water tech company, about the ongoing water shortages and the innovations being used to help solve it. Xylem's up 35% this year. We're back in a moment. Welcome back. It's been a summer of really extreme weather from Hurricane Ida slamming the south and northeast to wildfires exploding across California, even into Lake Tahoe. And those fires are putting watersheds at risk, which has a big impact on people and corporations alike. Our Diana Olick takes a look at in the latest on her series on the rising risks from climate change. As fires tear across America's west, the risk right now is to life and property. Soon, it will be to water. When we have large-scale fires like this, get huge amounts of erosion that end up filling up the dams and reservoirs that store water and that help create hydropower. Like a bathtub filling with mud, the reservoir capacity is reduced and the water contaminated. It's estimated that in California, about 70% of the state's drinking water either starts or flows through national forests. We are feeling a huge sense of urgency to do work in the forest to make them more resilient to uh, climate change and to these large-scale catastrophic fires. Two years ago, the first ever Forest Resilience Bond was launched by the nonprofit Blue Forest and its founder, Zach Knight. It was just $4 million. We were well oversubscribed from investors for this first project. That private capital was used to thin and restore about 15,000 acres in the Tahoe National Forest. Investors are being paid back by local water and hydroelectric utilities. And now, working with the World Resources Institute... We are about to launch our second forest resilience bond, 48,000 acres of restoration. The value is six times the first at $25 million, and investor interest is so strong, there's already about $200 million in the pipeline for more. Corporations in all sorts of different sectors, in the beverage sector, agricultural sector, tech sector, they're all taking this quite seriously and looking at how they can be part of the solution. For tech, many of the data centers which need water to cool themselves are located in water-stressed areas. But water seeps into every aspect of commerce. Water is essential to our business. We need it to manufacture our products and we need it to use our products. In just the last year, Procter & Gamble provided a $200,000 grant to restore 400 acres in the El Dorado National Forest, which feeds the water supply of Sacramento and other Bay Area cities. That is in collaboration with the Forest Fund. Business has a responsibility to address these issues. And for water specifically, I think it's really a matter of identifying those areas where your business may be at risk. The return on the forest bond is only about 4%, but investors are more interested in the risk-related returns. That is, lowering their risk from costly droughts and disruptions to their water supply. And that risk is growing exponentially as the climate heats. Kelly? When you mentioned, Diana, how much water data centers need and, and companies like Procter & Gamble, can they lead the way in shoring up the water supply? 
Absolutely. It's just more about investment in trying to make these forests more resilient, more healthy, and so they don't burn as quickly as we see more droughts. And if they can invest in this type of restoration, then that's going to lower their risk. We do have foundations and, and water utilities looking to help. But once you get corporate America involved and you get some real money in there, that's what's going to make the difference, yeah, Kelly. Could be a, a big help. Diana, thank you. Diana Olick. And with major watersheds at risk of losing some of the water supplies that they have, the ongoing water shortages are likely to get worse. Water company Xylem is using technology to help solve it. Their shares are up 65% over the past year. And joining me now is Patrick Decker. He is the CEO of water utility company Xylem. Patrick, it's good to have you. I want to mention and make sure I'm reading this correctly that water futures on the CME are up 90% this year. So water is literally getting more expensive. Is that good or bad for a company like yours if you guys do kind of water recycling? Well, first, uh, thanks, Kelly, for having me. Uh, <clears throat> I'd be remiss if I didn't give a shout out to all of the first responders over the last 24 hours here in, in the New York area uh, with Hurricane Ida. So we talk about the lack of water in parts of the world. We talk about the abundance of water in other parts of the world. Uh, and so, again, I just want to th say thanks to all of the first responders. Uh, you know, my thoughts and prayers are for all those that are affected by Ida at this point in time. Uh, this really brings into focus, as you've teed up, uh, a focus on the three biggest water challenges facing the world right now. The first is accessibility to usable water. The second is resilience of our infrastructure to climate change. And then third, as investors always ask me, and that is how are we gonna pay for it? So how do we make it affordable? Uh, so those are the three big themes that we put out uh, in front of the public that we have to address. So your company, you think can help when I, as I mentioned, if the price of water has doubled this year, and this is just the commodity that's trading, you know, it's, it's very different across the board. It's a very fragmented market. How can your company help make water more affordable? You, you know, di Kelly, digital is the key. And, uh, you know, digital is only as important as it provides data to inform utilities and the users of water uh, to more effectively manage, you know, their existing assets. So uh, when we think about the big issues there, uh, you know, we think about how we treat water uh, in a more affordable way, how we uh, test water in a more affordable way, and how we transport water to where it needs to be in a more affordable way. And the reality is, uh, you know, the solutions exist today that didn't exist 10 years ago uh, to be able to address that uh, in a very effective way. So what are some of those solutions? As I mentioned, you guys do a lot of water reuse. It can be complementary to desalinization and those kinds of products. And if the supply of water is at risk, then it would seem like reusing the, the current supply is very important. I know you offer metering and other kinds of technologies as well. You know, give me some example in practice of how that can help address the shortages. Sure. So, you know, one of the it's a great question, Kelly. I mean, one, one of the examples is, uh, you know, one big challenge as evidenced by uh, Storm Ida is stormwater overflow. And this is only one uh, example or use case that we uh, share with customers. And that is how we help utilities and cities meet their EPA guidelines around stormwater overflow. And we have an example of different cities around the US and the world where let's use a reference of it might cost $1 billion to build infrastructure to catch water 
and manage that water during overflow. Mm -hmm. We're able, along with other companies, to do that at 20% of the cost uh, based upon making the existing infrastructure uh, more effective and smarter by using distributed sensing technology and using artificial intelligence to make that grid smarter and make it more agile. Yeah. No, I can see why that's obviously a, a, a huge interest right now. And investors seem to like what you're up to as well. The shares outperforming the S&P by about 50% year to date. Patrick, thanks for your time today. We appreciate it. Thank you, Kelly. Patrick Decker is the CEO of Xylem. And one-time bond king Bill Gross is trashing treasuries. We have those details next with a 10-year dropping below 1.3% today. And remember, you can catch this show anytime, anywhere by listening to and following The Exchange podcast. We're back in a moment. Welcome back to The Exchange. One-time bond king Bill Gross, founder of fixed-income firm PIMCO, is taking another bold stance on his long-favorite asset class. Gross says bond yields are poised to rise as the Fed begins tapering, and that makes the investment quote-unquote trash. In a blog post, Gross writes, cash has been trash for a long time, but there are now new contenders for the investment's garbage can. Intermediate to long-term bond funds, he says, are in that trash receptacle for sure. Will stocks follow? Earnings growth had better be double-digit plus or else they could join the garbage truck. Again, that's Bill Gross. He sees the 10-year yield trading around 2% in the next year. It's below 1.3% today, and he's been bearish on bonds for a while, saying in March he began betting against Treasuries at around one and a quarter percent Still ahead, shares of ChargePoint climbing today on the heels of a strong quarterly report, but the stock has taken a beating since going public on March 1. We're going to speak to the CEO of ChargePoint next. Don't go anywhere. We're back in a moment. Welcome back to The Exchange. Shares of ChargePoint are surging today after strong results, but they're still about 50% down from their 52-week highs. So they're up 8% on the session, down 53% from the year highs, as I mentioned. And they're not alone. EVgo, the EV uh, uh, charging play as well, is down 62% from its 52-week high. Blink Charging, down 48%. Analysts blame the weakness on less-than-expected funding for EV items in the Senate version of the infrastructure bill. So why is ChargePoint so bullish, raising its third-quarter guidance and seeing sunnier skies ahead. Let's ask the CEO. Joining me now is Pasquale Romano of ChargePoint. It's great to have you. Welcome. Thank you so much, Kelly, for having us. Why do you think sentiment is all of a sudden turning a corner here? Uh, you know, I mean, we've seen this trend. I don't think it's really turned a corner. I think it's really starting to uh, be realized that, that we're in early mass market with EV adoption. And that's evidenced by uh, the strong results we, we just turned in. If we're in early adoption of the EV market, does that necessarily mean that EV charging stocks will do well? Or is there too much competition uh, and uncertainty around what exactly the charging network and economics will look like? Uh, well, for us, we're a tech company. So we sell um, software subscriptions to form a network. We sell each business those software subscriptions and the associated chargers. So we link them all together into a network. Uh, and, and we're seeing very strong demand across all sub-verticals uh, in, in the industry. And I think that's evidence, that's evidence that businesses are seeing uh, EVs show up in their parking lot and they're engaging accordingly. Uh, and so for us, it's all about execution. Right now, it's about grabbing that scale and, and, and just continuing to execute and taking advantage of the demand. So to be clear, are your clients and customers any kind of business who wants to have charging stations on their property, or are they actually charging stations, uh, the hardware themselves? Uh, it's any, well, it's any business that wants to, to put charging on their property. We will 
obviously consult with the business on the appropriate uh, type of charger to put on the property. And then the hallmark of our business, obviously, is the ChargePoint network, which we um, uh, bill to our business customers uh, on an annual basis per port of charging that they 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 put a, they put in their parking lot. So it's a recurring revenue business. Yes, and us. I know a lot of the uh, bulls like the name because they think it's almost like an Uber or an Airbnb. You provide the hardware, you provide sort of the um, the software management, but without necessarily uh, getting too much into the economics of things. What about con- competition and consolidation? In the early days of any industry, we see a ton of different players, a ton of different names. No one's really sure which horse to bet on as the one that will really be coming out ahead in five years' time, let's say. Well, Kelly, I think that's just natural. That, as, you, as you're implying, it's very natural at the beginning of an industry to just not understand uh, who's going who's gonna to be able to get through uh, the, uh, the transition to uh, scale company. At, at, and this market is breathtakingly large when you anything associated with transportation is breathtakingly large. Um, you've seen us announce uh, very recently two acquisitions. One's closed, one will uh, likely close sometime in the fall. So, um, you know, consolidation is definitely part of the equation here, I think, as an industry. Uh, but really what it's about is execution and yeah. selection of the right business model. Quick final question. Is Tesla a competitor? If they open the super, you know, Brian Sullivan did a great look at how much better that technology is than a lot of the other options out there right now. If they open it up to everybody, does that undercut your business model? Uh, no, not at all. Um, we actually uh, are, are very much in the fast charge business. Tesla's supercharger network largely deals with one sub-vertical, which is when you're driving beyond your battery range. The everyday charging uh, is certainly uh, mostly handled by ChargePoint uh, in North America, and we're making great strides in, in Europe uh, with our customer base growing there. Uh, and if you uh, look at our focus in that particular segment of driving beyond your battery range, that fast charge segment, mm-hmm. when you need to go quickly, the driver needs something to do because while it's a fast, fast yeah. charge, not 10 to 15 minutes. So we're focusing on the fueling and convenience right. players that, that have served that fueling uh, uh, business for a long time. Yeah, no, it, you, you know, I'll go to Costco with that kind of time. Pasquale, thanks very, very much for joining us today. Pasquale Romano of Short, uh, ChargePoint. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools.